Welcome to the Novel Romantics Literature of Chicago podcast series at the American Centrum Hamburg. I'm the host of Novel Romantics, Douglas Cowie. I'm a writer and teacher. In each episode of this series, my guest and I will discuss a work of literature set primarily in Chicago. And for this episode, we'll be discussing Chicago Poems by Carl Sandburg, which was first published in 1916. My guest today is Michael Coyle. Professor of English at Colgate University, Michael Coyle is founding president of the Modernist Studies Association, past president of the International T.S. Eliot Society, and has served on the advisory boards of the National Poetry Foundation and the Raymond Williams Society. He writes about modernist poets like T.S. Eliot, Mina Loy, Langston Hughes, and Ezra Pound, as well as definitively modernist cultural developments like jazz radio and, of course, the Martini Cocktail. His Ezra Pound, Popular Genres and the Discourse of Culture, was published in 1995. He has subsequently edited two collections for the National Poetry Foundation, Ezra Pound and African American Modernism in 2001, and with Stephen G. Yao, Ezra Pound and Education in 2012. Other edited collections include Raymond Williams and Modernism for Keywords in 2003, and with Deborah Ray Cohen, Broadcasting Modernism, University of Florida Press 2009. With Roxana Prada, he produced Professional Attention, Ezra Pound, and the Career of Modernist Criticism. This book was not only the first reception history of Pound, but also a study of the formation of modern literary criticism. He and Professor Prada are currently completing the first serious study of Dorothy Shakespeare's work. Shakespeare was wife to Ezra Pound, but also the only woman artist to make serious contributions to vorticism. And Coyle's A Fool for Beauty, Modernism, and the Racial Semiotics of Crooning will appear next year <laughs> in the Cambridge University press collection, jazz and American culture. I'm quite excited to hear about crooning. <laughs> so welcome. Welcome. Michael. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. I did. I had to breathe a couple of times in the middle of it, but welcome to the podcast. Thank That's you for joining me. That's just shape for Sandberg's poetry. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> Total and pleasure. God, how, how, how perfect that, that your podcast is called Novel Romantics because Sandberg's got everything to do with romanticism. Romance, yeah, less to do with novels, but lots to do with romanticism. Um, I suppose... We need to start yeah. by just saying who is Carl Sandburg. He's he's one of these curious figures who, when he was alive, everybody read him and everybody knew who he was. And he was famous for a lot of different things. And now, you know, more than 100 years after this first collection of poetry, which we're going to discuss today, he's his I mean, his name is everywhere in America. It's on schools. There's a, you know, a national museum or whatever it is at his house in North Carolina, where he mm -hmm. lived in, in the end of, towards the end of his life, libraries are named after him and so on. But he's not someone that people read in universities or schools necessarily anymore. He's, he's known as a, a biographer of Abraham Lincoln, um, a poet, a journalist, a collector of folk songs. These are all things that he did. And again, like he won Pulitzer prizes and at the end of his life was was a highly regarded American poet. Well, you know, what happens with American poetry in the 20th century is really interesting because there's this, this kind of split, right? On the one side, the modernist poets, all those those poets that I usually spend my, my time thinking about, Pound, Eliot, Mina Loy, Marianne Moore, they're pushing poetry to new levels of intensity and difficulty, self-consciously mm -hmm. difficult. But on the other hand, following Whitman, there's this kind of nativist tradition that that possibly found its its greatest expression in the work of Langston Hughes or William Carlos Williams. But Sandberg was part of that. And you know, it's not just that he was a popular poet, right? He was a populist poet. You know, populism, that that 
that ideology that's been so important to American history, which presents the, the people as this force of moral good and always contrasting them favorably against the elites who, yeah. you know, in, 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 this, in this kind of work tends to show up as corrupt and self-serving. Sandberg was very much part of that. Yeah. But if you, if you can let me go on for just a moment of longer. Course. Doug, I've been thinking about, about this for a very long time, and I, I've never really known how to get at it. But I think, you know, looking back, between, say, like 1880 and 1920, that's the high watermark of literary culture, right? There were more books sold and, and read then than at any time before or since. That's the moment when literary culture has its most immediate effect on what we think of as popular culture. People were reading. Movies weren't yet a thing. There was no internet. Radio wasn't a thing. Novels were the ways that, that, that you communicated cultural values. And poetry benefited from this too. So this was so much the case that the modernist poets could insult their audiences and sort of dare them to follow, right? The way that Pound and Elliot did. Insult your audience and be thanks for doing so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But expect that that people would still continue reading. No poet would do that today because nobody would care. But on on the other hand, and this is where Chicago was so important, as you know, this is your Mm -hmm. podcast. But these Chicago poets like Rachel Lindsay, Edgar Lee Masters, Harriet Monroe, or Carl Sandburg turned the opposite way, right? They were mm-hmm. writing for the people and deeply suspicious of the kind of cultural elitism that, that literary and cultural modernism represented. So in that context, Sandburg's a really interesting character. Yeah. I mean, that kind of, that dynamic of, you know, contempt for the elite and singing the um, praises of the common man. I always, whenever I say something like that, I think of Barton Fink, um, the Coen Brothers film, where he's always <laughs> um, going on about trying to convey the common man, and it makes me feel a bit sheepish. But um, like that's, there's hardly a poem in this collection that doesn't set that dynamic up one way. Now there are some that don't, but like so many of the poems. Whenever you see a rich guy at the beginning of a a poem in this collection, you know that there's going to be a turn at the end. That is about some, you know, working stiff who's got more, you know, who's got some sort of halo around, uh, around him or something. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, like another famous example that we could re- recall is the uh, American poet Edwin Arlington Robinson, mm-hmm. who was writing in the same era. He wasn't from Chicago, but he's the one who wrote Richard Corey, the rich guy who seemed to have everything going for him, owned everything in town. Women threw themselves at him. Da, da 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 da, and then at the end of the poem, he kills himself. Simon and Garfunkel uh, made a song out of out of that poem. Mm-hmm. So that kind of populism, and and that's central to what Sandberg did. Well, and it's 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 also I think th- partly through not just through Sandberg, but I think partly, um, and maybe you know I'm not an expert in this exactly, but like I think to it for a great deal due to Sandberg, this kind of sets a tone for Chicago literature, I think. You know, again, this is 1916. Chicago isn't that old of a city at, at this point. There isn't a lot of um, nationally known literature set in or about Chicago at this point. You know, basically Sister Carrie, uh, which is 1900 by Theodore Dreiser, which we've covered elsewhere in this series, um, is kind of it. And, well, there's Upton Sinclair. Well, yeah, but that's a bit later, isn't it? <laughs> I, it is a bit later. You're right. 
but like there's there's not a lot and and you know also upton sinclair well isn't exactly singing the praises of the city <laughs> um <Nope. laughs> but uh, he's, he's populist though uh, yeah for sure and and but i think what 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 sandberg does is um marries that that populism with a kind of what is which is prevalent in the in the civic life of chicago at this time with the kind of city boosterism that like you know all the all the rich people that he disdains in these poems are also part of this push to like be boosters of Chicago and and get Chicago on the map and and create you know this you know Paris on Lake Michigan as they wanted to see it or this rival for New York as is probably a slightly more um, realistic view of the city and 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 Sandberg has that and and it's that kind of populism and critique of the of the grubby side of the city married to a real love of the city is something that you see again and again in in lots of chicago literature through the middle of the 20th century and, and later and i and i kind of think it if it doesn't originate with sandberg he's certainly the guy that gives it this popular not just populist but popular push that makes it a kind of legitimate attitude for serious literature i think I don't know if that if that description well, you know, makes sense. There are hi- historical reasons for this too, right? Mm-hmm. Because the Great Chicago Fire was 1871, so in, in 1900, Chicago was was practically a new city. Yeah. The whole central part of the downtown had, had been burned, mm-hmm. and the World's the Fair had come through in '93. Yeah, right, and that also was celebrating Chicago no longer as a frontier town, right? But as as you were saying, a, a rival to New York. So Sandberg was perfect for that, but I I am struck by it, and and again it's it's good that we're, we're we're talking both about popular and populist, and maybe they were popular because they were populist, mm-hmm. but like Vigil Lindsay thought well he defined his his work as higher vaudeville yeah right this was That's an amazing phrase to, isn't it <laughs> yeah. to create a poetry that can speak to ordinary people or Edgar Lee Masters Spoon River Anthology each poem is is Basically, the epitaph on a headstone, death is the great leveler. So there's there's his version of populism. And, uh, you know, Harriet Monroe, who, who had been a struggling poet until the New York world published her Columbian Ode, right? Her Ode to the Great Columbian Ex- Exhibition without her consent. She won $5,000 in wow. a legal settlement. That was big money in, I know. in that era. I, love, I was going to say, and that with, was a lot of money that, in those days. It's a lot of money in these days for a poem. <laughs> <laughs> for a poet, it is, right? But so she, when she got that, that settlement, she, she took it and founded Poetry Magazine, which to this day mm-hmm. remains the single most important journal yeah. devoted solely to poetry in English. So Chicago had a big role to play. And gave um, Lindsay his start as well, didn't it? Didn't Poetry, wasn't that the first place to publish Rachel Lindsay? Yeah. Golly, that, that magazine gave any number of poets yeah. their, 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 their first start. And she may not have been the first to publish Pounder Elliot, but she was among the first. Mm-hmm. She might have been the first to publish Elliot on Reflection. She took the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock after it had been turned down by every single publisher in London. So Chicago wins. <laughs> Every time. Turning to Sandberg, um, something that you and I talked about briefly before is um, outside of the realms of this podcast is what um, Archibald McLeish said about him. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess I, I, after he died, as kind of a, I don't know if I want to call it a eulogy exactly, but yeah, 
Yeah, it was a he he gave this this talk oh maybe 3 or 4 months after Sandberg's death and essentially what he said was we remember Sandberg not for any particular poem but for his entire collective work like as a statement his entire published work represents mm-hmm. one kind of statement a great championing of the voice of the american people in other words mcleish wasn't going to pretend that that sandberg was the same kind of poet that he himself was mm-hmm. right sandberg had had sort of scoffed at the the free verse experiments of the modernist you know he, he famously said Oh, if it gels in the free verse, all right. If it gels in the rhyme, all right. In other words, yeah. he, he, he presented himself as somebody who didn't worry over much about aesthetic principles. He was just going to tell the truth. He was like a country song, three yeah. chords and the truth, right? That's, but that's like, that's also kind of BS though, right? It's like, I mean, that kind of thing is always a pose in a, in a, in an artist, oh, sure. but, um, but I mean, he even has a poem in this collection, um, called style <laughs> in which he basically contradicts that <laughs> statement style go ahead talking about style you can tell where a man gets his style just as you can tell where pavlova got her legs or ty cobb his batting eye go on talking only don't take my style away it's my face maybe no good but anyway my face i talk with it i sing with it i see taste and feel with it i know why i want to keep it kill my style and you break Pavlova's legs and you blind Ty Cobb's batting eye. So like, this is, you know, he's, it's not like, Oh, if it goes this way, fine. If it goes, he's self-consciously creating a style and he's saying as much in this poem, even while he's still trying to kind of belie it by the things he compares it to, right? Like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm the dancer's legs. I'm the, I'm the baseball players, um, you know, hand eye coordination, whatever. He's, he's still trying to, it's still there, that populist move, even though he's, self-consciously yeah. concerning some, himself with the the style that he writes. And maybe that's a, a as good a um, fulcrum as I, any to turn and talk about you, his you style. Finger on. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, let's let's do that. Uh, you, um, you, you put your finger on that poem. So here he is, the great man of the people, yeah. talking about Pavlova's legs. Yeah. All right, he wants us to know that he's a real man and yeah, he yeah, admires yeah. A, a gorgeous woman, right? But so there he's talking about ballet or in another poem, he he praises the Czech violinist and composer Jan Kubelik, right? There's a, another poem that's a pan of praise to William Morris or in, in another – actually, there's a, another poem where he talks about Omar Khayyam's uh, Rubaiyat. But that's that's less about a high culture than the others because the Rubaiyat was – and it always has been immensely popular with readers of poetry. But the, the fact of the, of the matter is, he'll go from a, a poem that, that praises a guy who, who works with a shovel all day long to a, a poem that talks about Pavlova. He, um, I, I think in his vision, it was all part of the same mosaic, right? Yeah. Art in its, its, its most accomplished expressions should be part, he thought, of working people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm, but I'm sorry, you wanted to turn to his style. Oh, style, yeah. And think a bit about where it comes from and where it leads to, maybe. Well, <laughs> you know, I um, I remember what Mencken said of of Sandberg, that it was Sandberg who first put America on paper. Kind of a diss to Walt Whitman, but, but yeah. okay. But, <laughs> yeah. but I was thinking of that. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say it's um, hard to ignore Walt Whitman. Like it's hard to it's hard to read Sandberg's poems and not think of Walt Whitman. Mm-hmm. But um, 
what we were talking about the other day is, and I hadn't read Carl Sandburg in a long time, Doug, so thanks for this. Mm-hmm. But as, as I was reading him, it hit me, oh, wait a minute. Ginsburg and the Beats, they didn't come directly from Whitman. They came straight through Sandberg. Sandberg is this great, important, mediating voice. And Ginsburg might have thought of himself as a man of the people, but he wasn't a, a populist. You know, he was too weird in any, mm-hmm. any number of ways to, to achieve the kind of popularity that Sandberg did. But he, he took so much from Sandberg's example, including these, these textures that that don't really feel poetic at all. There was a, there's this, this old, old claim about Sandberg that really the only thing that makes his poems poems are the irregular left margins. <laughs> you know, that it's, it's, it's prose presented on a page differently, that, that his, his work gives the illusion of, of poetry. That's not always true, but it's often true. But we, we could say, and you don't have to agree with me on this, but you know a prose a prose poem. Maybe we can get at something. Yeah, so of, I don't think I do agree with you on that. Like, I think I, I think I. Well, it's not me. It's blame it on Mencken. Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> Mencken, you bastard. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, making the great snob. Yeah, well, because so the first thing is that you know the the line that long line, which Ginsburg. Um, uses in in Howell in particular, but not just in Howell, um, and which Sandberg uses often but not always, really does come from Whitman. And, of course, and and it isn't, you know, it isn't prose. Um, you know, I feel like a, <laughs> I feel well. Yeah, I feel like a prose poem. I mean, there's the, two of the poems that I like the most in this collection: um, Chicago, which which we'll look at maybe a bit more closely in a bit, and Skyscraper, which is the last one in the in the um, original volume. Mm-hmm. Chicago poems are, both use this long line, and they they're not they're really not um, prose. They just you know. A long line doesn't just automatically equate to prose. I think a prose poem has to be a more, I guess, a denser thing or a slightly less self-consciously controlling line breaks. And, and even a long line still has a line break. You might argue that the um, penultimate poem in the collection to a contemporary bunk shooter is pretty close to just being, it's just kind of a rant. <laughs> yeah, but it does seem to me that that um, Sandberg was sort of lyrical in imagination, but not in the line. Like mm. there are very few lines in his in his poems, at least for me, that resonate. And I'll be delighted, you know, for your pushback if you if you disagree. You know, he's this populist poet, but back back at the time that he published this first of his books, he was greeted as a fellow traveler by the Imagist, who had. Um, you know, launched their revolution in, in London. It was originally Pound's thing, but it was taken over by the American poet Amy Lowell, who wasn't at all interested in what Pound thought imagism should be. She was interested in something much more populist, right? So Sandberg fit right in. And I think he benefited from that. But 
you know, we want to talk about his style. You've suggested one thing to do, to look at the title poem. Yeah. But at, at some point, I'd like to compare his 1916 poem, Subway. Yeah, I was going to say Ezra we might Pound's do that now. Poem of 1913. Let's, you want to do it right now? Yeah, let's do it now. Okay. Because I so, think it makes more sense. Because if, if you could just say a little bit more about imagism, because the, the, the most famous... I, probably the most famous images poem is is Ezra Pound's um, at a station of the Metro, right? Yeah. Um, um, so okay, here's here's in a station of the Metro. It's a two line poem, and the poetry is really what happens between the two lines, and it's it's never stated, right? It's it's a complete, it's a perfect example of parataxis. And there are spaces after like every three words in these lines because Pound wants to isolate them. So Before you go, I'd like you, to ex- I'd like you to explain what parataxis is for our listeners who aren't professors of literature. Oh, good, <laughs> good point. Well, it's, 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 let's just say it's the leaving out of overt connections. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poetry of juxtaposition. Thank you. And and this poem is a good example of it. Go for it. Well, <laughs> you were right to call me out on that. So here's here's Pound's 1913 poem, In a Station of the Metro. The apparition of these faces in the crowd. Petals on a wet black bow. And Pound tells us that that what happened was he was in the the Paris metro, and he's there right as a a train pulls into station. And you know the metro in that era would have been dark and smoky. You know was, mm-hmm. what light there was came from gas lamps. And so the the doors of the train open, and these faces come pouring out, and some of them. Are, are illuminated by these gas lights for just a moment before they, they swoop by him. And it had a powerful effect on him. And he spent, he said he spent months trying to get it right. You know, first he writes a super long poem, you know, 80 lines. And then he keeps whittling it away, trying to capture the, the you know, the essence of that experience. And he ends up with the two lines I, I just quoted. So on the one hand, you have the very modern urban image, the the apparition of these faces in the crowd, right? And the important word there is apparition. Yeah, It's not what these faces actually were. It's, it's how they strike him. And then the, the second line is from nature, and it's also from, from Japan, from Japanese watercolors, petals on a wet black bow, like a flowering tree. There's, there's a rainstorm that blasts some of the, the, the flowers apart and the petals stick to the, the branch. And what do you do with that? The poem isn't didactic it doesn't tell you right to some degree so the sound of it that, pulls you to pulls it to together right though because like bow and crowd have a kind of slant rhyme to them that catches your ear if you read it out loud <clears throat> or if you listen to michael Coyle reading it out loud reciting it out loud um and the alliteration at the yeah, end the as well, black really... bow and the and then the, mm-hmm. the way that the rhythm rhythmically it's wet black bow that like the three uh, monosyllabic words at the end of part right. of the, the succession of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the poem doing all it can to get us to pause over each of those, those yeah. single syllable words. It, it's a poem that wants to be read deliberately, slowly. 
and it doesn't tell you what to think about anything. And the force of the few adjectives in the in the poem, it's really more just like what kind of blah pound pound wants us to see that tree branch is is wet and 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 black and the petals are white. He wants that contrast. But so Sandberg's poem, Subway, it's written three years later. It's also short, but it's a really different kind of poem. Yeah. Should I read it? Should I read it just for the contrast? Yeah, but as you're reading it, notice too all the, the prepositions it yeah. depends on. Yeah. So this is Subway. Down between the walls of shadow, where the iron laws insist, the hunger voices mock. The worn wayfaring men with the hunched and humble shoulders throw their laughter into toil. Yeah, there's a lot of prepositions in there. Mm-hmm. Down between of, of. and then where, the, the, the preposition, yeah, with the hunched yeah. and throw their laughter into toil. So it's doing the relating for us. This is it's a good example of Sandberg's populism, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like we're celebrating the working man. Their faces are worn because they work so hard. Their shoulders are hunched. But but you know, like Pound would never do something like this with the hunched and humble shoulders. Because okay, hunched is a is a physical dis- description. You're giving mm-hmm. it to us directly. But humble is a moral commentary on yeah. it. That move is super important to populist writing but has no place in modernist writing. Yeah. So like, let's just unpick that a little bit. It's important to the populist writing because it, like Sandberg wants you to get it. He has, he, like he wants to give you an image and he wants you to understand that image in a particular way. Right. Like he doesn't want you to misunderstand mm-hmm. that, that the, the, the kind of joy of life and the toil of life are, are intertwined and, you know, and that there's something noble about this backbreaking work, even in the face of the mockery that comes before it. Oh no, I'm not, I'm not remotely, I'll I'll probably come back to this. I'm not remotely criticizing the position. Um, I know, I know. um, But he wants to make sure you get that. He doesn't want there to be ambiguity about how to read these working men in the subway. Yeah, so there's absolutely right. He wants there to be no ambiguity about the the moral superiority of these working people. But then the opening line of the poem, down between the walls of shadow. Mm. And if I lean on that line, I don't know what that means. The walls of shadow? How is that different from the shadowed walls, the walls that are dark because there's no light on them? Is he making a, a, a deeper metaphorical point? Is he just not in absolute control of his language. I was going to say that as like, I'm is, not sure. Is it like a, he wants the line to be a certain, he, cause it's not a prose poem. He, cause, um, he wants the line to be a certain length and a certain rhythm. And so he has to sort of slightly contort language to do it, which isn't necessarily the, the sign of a poet in, in control of language, but that's one, one way of thinking about it anyway. Sorry, carry on. Yeah. And, you know, the beginning of that poem, it, it sounds almost like a, a Kipling line, except he breaks off the rhythm. So if you start down between the walls of shadow where the iron laws insist, and I think of Kipling, you know, on the road to Mandalay where the flying fish is yeah. playing, that, that kind of thing, right? But then he breaks off from it immediately. You, you get that, that, that sort of taste. Yeah. But then the, the third line, 
breaks that up. The hunger voices mock. Okay. Um, you want to call attention to the fact that these these people are hungry? Mm -hmm. That's a good way to do it. The, the music kind of stops. Mm -hmm. But the hunger voices mock? Why hunger voices and not hungry? Hungry. And why are you, if, you know, if you're talking about hunger, what are we doing talking about voices as opposed to, to men and women? Is he making a sort of meta point about populist poetry, like hungry to tell it like it really is? But I, I don't see the poem delivering that either. And I'm sorry, it, it sounds like I'm, I'm just beating up on him, but I'm, I'm fascinated by Sandberg's genuine and immense uh, popular readership. And none of the poets I usually write about ever had that. Eliot had something like it later in his life, but I'm I'm not sure that he was as beloved as he was respected. Mm -hmm. You know, when he filled uh, the football stadium at at University of Minnesota with fifteen thousand people who came out to hear him, they weren't reciting the longs the lines. That, in their heads along with him. Actually, he wasn't reading poetry. He was giving a lecture about criticism, the frontiers of criticism. Um, but do you, you see what I mean about Sandberg's language? Mm -hmm. The hunger voices mock. If you were teaching one of your 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 writing students in a, in a workshop, <laughs> I suspect you would stop them right and there. They're like, what the hell does this mean? <laughs> and say do over in some way or the other. <laughs> yeah. 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 On the other hand, I kind of like it. I, I, I talk about this with, with my writing students sometimes where I, you know, there's a difference between reading something in a workshop and reading something that's been published. Um, and the way you approach reading in these different contexts is, is you know, matters, is, is important. Um, and I'm more forgiving of the hunger voices mock in a, in a published collection of poems than I am in a, in a workshop maybe uh, where I might ask someone to push, you know, to explain what they're what they're driving at, um, there's something about. I mean, it could even mean voices mock the hunger, but I don't see how that fits either. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. It's like words set free, but they they don't reconnect in a way that that, that uh, takes me anywhere. Um, but you know, the the poem right after that is called the Shovel Man. Yeah. And that might be Sandberg at his at his best, at his populist best. Because I'm, I'm not trying to disrespect him. I'm just thinking about the, you know, what is his legacy for mm -hmm. us in the 21st century? So the shovel man, maybe I should just read it because it's Go quite it. short. On the street, slung on his shoulder is a handle halfway across. Tied in a big knot on the scoop of cast iron are the overalls faded from sun and rain in the ditches spatter of dry clay sticking yellow on his left sleeve and a flimsy shirt open at the throat i know him for a shovel man a dago working for a dollar six bits a day and a dark-eyed woman in the old country dreams of him for one of the world's ready men with a pair of fresh lips and a kiss better than all the wild grapes that ever grew in tuscany okay now, that word Dago, uh, problematic. Yeah. But this shows up a lot in Sandberg. He's, he's not, this is a poem that's, that's loving this guy and celebrating, mm -hmm. you know, what he brings to the American mosaic, right? 
there are lots of words like this that, that show up and I don't want to have to defend them. I just want to say it's not a racist gesture. It might be a racialist, but it, there's no hatred here, right? Yeah, it's partly so him trying saying, to speak the, the language of the, of the common man, right? Like these are the terms that are thrown around saying, on the street. Yeah. And so he's going to use them as well. And that doesn't take away the problem. That's exactly but it. it. But it offers an explanation for what is at play, I suppose. Well, I think it's the perfect explanation, Doug. And, and yeah, so this is Sandberg imitating the way he hears working men mm -hmm. talk. Um, so we could, we could argue or other people can argue, well, isn't it the poet's job to sort of, you know, transform ordinary speech into something better? But what I'm really noticing here is um, he's saying even this guy who's shoveling garbage in the street, has something noble about him and even he is inspiring the love of a of a woman right mm -hmm. him as as well as you know some aristocrat or, or capitalist you know sitting in his fancy villa eating italian grapes um that is the kind of moment i think that made sandberg so beloved in the first half of the 20th century well, um, yeah. So, but we, I think a 21st century reader may not get past that that word that we were just talking no, about. That's also true. But this this comes back to um, something you said right at the beginning that of of your idea that you know the kind of high point of literature in America is is 1880 <clears throat> to 1920 when there's when there's no TV and no radio and you know what do you what do you have um, and what like. So like a thing that we still concern ourselves with today when it comes to art is is how we see ourselves and our experience reflected in the art that we that we read and watch and examine and whatever right like the kind of phrase i feel seen or that kind of thing or representation of various individuals or groups uh, in in art and and so, like we we concern ourselves with how race or sexuality or these kinds of things are portrayed in television shows or in films or mm -hmm. whatever. But like, if you know, you don't if you can't afford in 1916 when this poem was published in this book to go, you can't afford to go to the theater um, to watch a play, mm -hmm. and you might read a newspaper which might publish poems. Um, you might pick up uh, a poem somewhere else. You might have. Um, Rachel Lindsay hands you a poem in exchange for bread while you're walking <laughs> his 600 miles down to Florida or whatever. And, and, you know, you're suddenly seeing yourself represented in this poem and represented as worthy as like, you know, worthy of artistic representation and, and, and as in a dignified way, that's not necessarily, I, mean, I don't have any access to this, you know, myself, sitting in in london in 2021 but like that could be quite a powerful thing if you're assuming you're literate i suppose um i don't know what mm. literacy english literacy levels were like amongst the italian garbage shovelers in chicago in 1916 but um there's something valuable about that representational aspect yeah hey well there's there's some one other thing i want to say about this poem and the, and the way to say it is to read the very next poem in the volume. <laughs> and these are all super short. Yeah. This one's only seven lines long. And it's not the, even the title of it. It's just half the, a sonnet. 
<laughs> not even. It's not even <laughs> an octave. Yeah. <laughs> right? So so the titles matter, right? So it matters that that poem we, we've been talking about is called The Shovel Man. This one is called A Teamster's Farewell with a subtitle, Sobs en Route to a Penitentiary. And this one is actually probably a better poem than, than The Shovel Man. Goodbye now to the streets and the clash of wheels and locking hubs, the sun coming on the brass buckles and harness knobs, the muscles of the horses sliding under their heavy haunches. Goodbye now to the traffic policeman and his whistle, the smash of the iron hoof on the stones, all the crazy, wonderful, slamming roar of the street. Oh, God, there's noises I'm going to be hungry for. Here's, here's Sandberg's whole program in a yeah. nutshell, right? It's the ordinary sounds of a working city. And I know you want to get to the title poem of this volume. This might be the, the, the way there. It's those ordinary sounds that he hears America's mm -hmm. music, right? Yeah. This, this, is, this is getting into it like exactly where I wanted to go, actually, because um, we've kind of been building slowly towards it. This is, come, again, I, I, I'm harping on about this because I think it matters. Like this is the, that populist drive is partly, it's not just about being populist for the sake of being populist or popular or whatever. It's like, you know, in, in that Whitman-esque way, it's like, it's about using poetry to try mm. and constitute and embody the nation, like trying to like, you know, I'm resisting, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's 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 a it's a very self conscious attempt at being one of, one of Shelley's unacknowledged legislators of the world. Like <laughs> I, I really think that. Like you know, it's it's yeah, yeah. like Whitman in his preface to the first edition of Leaves of Grass is just going on and on and on about the greatest poet must embody this and this and that. You know, the implication being that he's the greatest poet, but. Um, only like a man in his twenties could write something like that. Um, but, but, um, but, but listen to you old timer. Yeah, yeah. When I was a lad, um, when, but, but this is, this is Sandberg trying to do that and give, and again, like give dignity to the, to the working men and women of the nation as worthy of, the highest ideals and worthy of poetry. One of the reasons that you said, you said this is actually a better poem than the shovel man. And I have a, a like a half thought through theory about why. Um, so Sandberg uh, was a journalist for basically his whole life. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, he wrote, he wrote a book that was based on things he was writing before, during, and after the, the 1919 race riots in Chicago. Um, and it's a, it's a book of journalism, essentially. Um, and he was a reporter for various newspapers. And so part of that job, particularly, I think, American traditions of journalism is being an observer, being, you know, half in and half out of things that you're, that you're writing about. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these poems, there's like a whole, like, I could go through a list of them in this collection are, the position the speaker of the poem as as that kind of observer watching the um watching the person who is the subject of the poem it's like the shovel man i know him for a shovel man somebody's watching the shovel man right and there's there's um like a fishmonger a jewish fishmonger in another poem who again it's yeah. like i know 
it's the first line is I know a Jew fish crier down on Maxwell street. It's a, a very, that's a big Chicago image there. Um, there's others where it's like, I was talking to this, I was watching this. And it's, there's always this eye, this self-conscious eye who's kind of like half in and half out. And, and the teamsters farewell is actually embodying the point of view of, of the teamster going off to prison. And that's the difference in the poem. Um, hey, so, so Doug, as you say this, yeah. Um, I wonder if, if you're if you're thinking of Baudelaire's insistence that the modern poet has to be a man of of the modern city, mm-hmm. right? In the crowd, but not of it. That's your halfway yeah. in, halfway yeah. out, right? And he's just there to sort of transform these momentary experiences, these glimpses of other lives, mm-hmm. transform them into the, the permanent form of a poem yeah do you, do you see sandberg as having re- any relation to that or does sandberg get there in a different way i do i do um, i'm i'm trying not to laugh because there's a, there's a quotation i have of something sandberg said i think it's when he won maybe when he won the pulitzer prize or something he said this and, and before i read this you have to take this i i feel like sandberg is saying this tongue-in-cheek um or at least partly tongue-in-cheek um he says Here's the difference between Dante, Milton, and me. They wrote about hell. <laughs> they wrote about hell, but never saw the place. I wrote about Chicago after looking the town over for years and years. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's nice. Actually, yeah. that's really nice. And, and I think I think there's a lot. Like it's it's great because it's got the humor. It's got the kind of slightly. I mean, it sets a certain tone about one's attitude. And I think a kind of Chicago attitude as well. But he's also not entirely. He's not exactly equating Chicago with hell, but he's not not equating Chicago with hell. And again, this um, and but he is insisting on this point of I looked the town over for years and years. Mm-hmm. Is is that kind of that fits in with that Baudelaire of you know in 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 but but apart kind of notion? I think it also sets us again, like I said earlier, a certain tone for how. Chicago literary endeavor in general over the the mid part of the 20th century in particular starts to develop and, and the attitude that, that writers like, you know, like Richard Wright and like um, James Farrell and like Nelson Algren, um mm. have towards the, the city um, and and themselves in relation to the city. I mean, that 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 quotation is, is not too close or not too far off from a, from a, something that you might hear Algren say um, he'd say it further out the side of his mouth probably, but maybe this is where we look at the title poem um, Chicago, which is not a prose poem. Do it. <laughs> um, it's actually, you know, but I think it's also that I think what it is, I think is the poem that's kind of, the most Whitman-esque other than, a, I think it's got the kind of most kind of leaves of grassy type of Whitman-y vibe. I don't know. Is that a word that we use in, in English literature studies? Uh, sure. And, he, and he, he, he takes a lot of structural principles from, from Whitman too, not least of which is that, that anaphoric structure that is yeah, a, a succession and, of lines that begin with that conjunction yeah. and this and that. Well, and it's also then the, it's also the, the link between Whitman and and Ginsburg that we we touched on earlier, yeah. but let's listen to this poem because I think it also sets again it sets this kind of tone. I looked the place over for years and years that I think just pervades 
um, an attitude about Chicago and, and the literature of Chicago in particular. So this is Chicago. It's got a the famous, the opening is famous and, and is the riposte, I suppose, to Archibald McLeish, that there's no one poem. I think this is the one poem. Um, Hog Butcher for the World. In, in fact, <laughs> cut me off just as I was reading. Go ahead. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, so I, I hope our producer can edit that up. <laughs> but but this poem is often reprinted just in part. Yeah. In other words, you just see these five lines. They resonate differently with in, the rest in of the it. context of the full poem. Yeah. So you're right. Let's hear it. Hog butcher for the world, toolmaker, stacker of wheat, player with railroads and the nation's freight handler, stormy, husky, brawling, city of the big shoulders. They tell me you are wicked and I believe them, for I've seen your painted women under the gas lamps luring the farm boys. And they tell me you are crooked and I answer yes, it is true, I have seen the gunmen kill and go free to kill again. And they tell me you are brutal, and my reply is, on the faces of women and children, I have seen the marks of want and hunger. And having answered so, I turn once more to those who sneer at this my city, and I give them back the sneer and say to them, come and show me another city with lifted heads, singing so proud to be alive and coarse and strong and cunning, flinging magnetic curses amid the toil of piling job on job. Here is a tall, bold slugger set vivid against the little soft cities. Fierce as a dog with tongue, lapping for action, cunning as a savage pitted against the wilderness, bareheaded, shoveling, wrecking, planning, building, breaking, rebuilding, under the smoke, dust all over his mouth, laughing with white teeth, under the terrible burden of destiny, laughing as a young man laughs, laughing even as an ignorant fighter laughs who has never lost a battle, bragging and laughing that under his wrist is the pulse and under his ribs the heart of the people, laughing laughing the stormy husky brawling laughter of youth half naked sweating proud to be hog butcher tool maker stacker of wheat player with railroads and freight handler to the nation it's quite a poem i, I really love this poem well it really is the place where he announces himself yeah isn't it? um it's also a good example of of how chicago earned its nickname the windy city you know that story yeah um chicago is not a particularly windy place but at the time of the, the Columbian Ex Exposition, 1893, there was so much press celebrating Chicago, puffing Chicago, that a, a New York uh, columnist complained about Chicago as the windy city because they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're blowing hot the air. The wind was, was him making. They're blowing a lot of hot air, right? But Chicago was proud. Yeah. And it had reason to be proud. And, uh, you know, he, he answers that. Like, you can sneer at this, my city. I'll give you back the sneer and say, what do you, what do, you do with all that laughter at the, um, in, the, in the final several lines of the... I think what Sandberg is, is trying to suggest there is that there's a joy in this work. Yeah. You, know, you compare the way that Sandberg and the other populists whom we've mentioned treat Chicago. Contrast that with how people like Henry James or Edith Wharton were, were mm -hmm. representing New York, mm -hmm. right? New York was being celebrated in terms of its cultural elites. Yeah. I don't know of any writers who do that with Chicago. And there were plenty of Robert Barons in Chicago, McCormick and, and, and the others, right? Yeah. Um, so he's celebrating Chicago as a working city and finding joy in that. It's bareheaded, right? These aren't fancy yeah. people in bowler hats, right? It's, it's shoveling, it's wrecking. Yeah. It's also a dumb, naive boxer who's going to get knocked out at some point. 
Yeah. I, I yeah. really like that image. And I think, again, it's an image that that you see reflected in other in later literature written about the city. Yeah, but but you know there are also a couple moments in here that that make this poem hard for 21st century yeah. readers. Mm-hmm. Chicago is fierce as a dog with tongue tongue lapping for action, cunning as a savage pitted against the wilderness like oh hello. Yeah. This was a century ago, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's not a again, it's not a racist comment. He's uh he's celebrating Chicago's ability to be like that savage and that kind of primitivism was was endemic in American literature. And not just white writers and black writers who think of uh, Langston Hughes' The Negro Speaks of Rivers, mm-hmm. the poem that made him famous, right? So it's not like we, we can't deal with this. It's not like you know we have to cancel the, the poem because that line's in there, but you can't help but notice Yeah, it, and you have to right? think about it and and recalibrate a little bit and and talk about it without without excusing it. Yeah. Yeah. So you were asking about that laughter. I, I think it's just part of the, what he says, you know, the heart of the people, the, the joy. Mm-hmm. This this is uh, Chicago, but implicitly, this is also Sandberg's view of America. Yeah. Well, you know, Chicago, Chicago writers are always concerned with making Chicago, maybe not always concerned, but often concerned with making Chicago um, a thing that is a the concerns the of America. Chicago are concerns of America. Sure, you know I am an American, Chicago born, Chicago that somber city. Um, Saul Bellow, mm-hmm. who is who is no populist, <laughs> um, <it's, laughs> but that's you know that I hear I hear I hear echoes of this poem in those opening lines of the Adventures of Augie March. Oh, nice, yeah. And so I think I think that's where for me, and maybe this is a, a, a good place to wrap up our discussion, coming back to that Archibald McLeish thing. I think I think, you know, I, I kind of facetiously am saying like I'll I'll give you this poem against as an argument against McLeish, but I'm not sure the poem really is an argument against McLeish. Because I think if anything, this one single poem that he's most known for, he's only known for, as you said, the first few lines, but but they they carry the um they carry that general importance of Sandberg in the lines of this poem. I think that, that the populism is there, the sincerity of that populism, the energy that he has for it and the kind of breadth of his, of his interest in, uh, in the working people and the working city I think he sees this. It's interesting. This is the beginning of urban America, and and this is a poet who sees the city as the the people there doing the stuff, building the things, and and his legacy is in that kind of celebration of of the the uh, an America that does. Yeah, and we remember that Archibald McLeish wasn't just a a poet more celebrated in his day than 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 ours, but he was also a librarian of Congress. And he was very interested in, in, in poems that, that represented America. So Sandberg was no modernist. He, he wasn't interested in aesthetics. He was a romantic and he was very sentimental. You know, uh, there's another Chicago poem uh, a, a few pages after the, the opening poem. It's just four lines. They will say, of my city, the worst that men will ever say is this. 
You took little children away from the sun and the dew and the glimmers that played in the grass under the great sky and the reckless rain, and you put them between walls. <laughs> There's this this deep indignation, right? This deep romantic indignation, this opposition between the beauties of nature and this 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 ugly working world that we've made. But, you know, the poem says, they will say, this is the worst that you can say of Chicago. Oh, yeah. So it's it's very sentimental. He had a good heart, and he he had a a way of identifying moments that 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 were worth holding on to. Like all these these little short poems, where people are identified by their occupation, and their occupation is never stockbroker, artiste, right? Yeah. It's always the the working people of the streets. A lot of poems about prostitutes, which is kind of embarrassing. Like, look at me. I can I can yeah. look at these these working women and, and, and not be appalled. But, you know, he wasn't Arthur Simmons either. It's not like he was frequenting. Um, mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, he's just trying to show us that his vision of the streets is inclusive and real. Yeah. Anyway, thanks, Doug. This was, this was kind of fun. Thank you, Michael, for joining me and for um... – expounding at such great length on <laughs> on modernism and and pound and sandberg i think it's interesting i genuinely think it's interesting to to remember that carl sandberg is doing this at a time of you know the wasteland and and ezra pound and t.s Eliot and this like high modernist literature that has had such an influence over over english language literature for you know more than a hundred years, um, and he's he's not in he's not of it, he, but he's not he's not he's still part of the conversation of that time, and in I, I find that really fascinating, and it's why I think Sandberg, though he his poems don't necessarily stand up to the kind of scrutiny that you can give to something like the Pound at a station of the Metro, um, they're still kind of worth revisiting and enjoying and thinking about and. And 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 spending some time with because they are they are fun. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's all I want to say. They're yeah. fun. Well, so you know, one sign of Sandberg's enduring, not just popularity, but but also significance for any vision of American culture that that, that aspires to inclusivity, is. In 1964, when he was first dealing with what felt to him like unbearable celebrity, the young Bob Dylan made a pilgrimage and unannounced, he didn't write ahead to say, is it all right if I come and see you, sir? <laughs> Dylan and his entourage show up at Sandberg's home in North Carolina. He knocks on the door and says, Hi, Mr. Sandberg. My name is Bob Dylan. I'm a poet too. And you can just imagine what Sandberg, who by that point was an old man, was thinking, was like, oh, God help me. Yeah. I was hoping, you, I was hoping you'd do a Bob Dylan impression there. I'm a little disappointed. Um, but, you know, but, you know, it, not without reason that Bob Dylan is visiting Carl Sandberg. There's, you know, you mentioned before that MacLeish was um, uh, li at the Library of Congress and he invited Sandberg to work there in part to be a buddy to Alan Lomax, who was working at the Library mm. of Congress at that time, you know, with his re field recordings of folk songs and everything, which 
you know, Sandberg had spent all this time earlier in his life running around collecting folk songs and recording them himself. Um, I, I, there's some really mm. nice recordings of, of Sandberg um, performing folk songs that he's picked up along the way. And his, you know, his book, um, American Songbag is like, that for a time was a book that like everybody had. And it was, that was about shaping America yeah. too. It's influential on Pete Seeger, influential on Bob Dylan. Uh, yeah, you know. and Dylan got it through through Pete Seeger, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, because the, the poets that Dylan was reading, you know, Rambo and, and yeah. Ahmad, well, they were all the fancy ones. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the same ones that uh, television were reading. That's another story for another day. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. <laughs> Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the America Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.